54th ANC National Elective Conference. Everything you need to know. This is Eyewitness News. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the showdown. We have previously looked at the possible scenarios of a Cyril Ramaphosa and Nkosazana Damini Zuma presidency, looked through their support from various provinces and examined the so-called unity being punted by the different factions ahead of conference. Now in this episode, we examine the party's policies that will be debated and resolved on at conference. Professor Samato Tafikeni joins me to unpack this. Prof, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me and greeting to your listeners. Now, Prof, when we talk about the ANC's National Congress, we tend to focus a lot on the leadership contest, but that's not all that happens at conference, and that's why I want us to start talking about this. I was speaking to Becky Kelly just the other day, and he was telling me that never has the ANC gone to the National Conference fearing the courts like they do right now. And that is why I suppose the ANC is proposing um, this constitutional amendment, which will deal with, um, which will be obviously discussed at conference. And the party wants to establish essentially a National Dispute Resolution Committee, which the party hopes would put in place sufficient avenues that would um, sort of deal with the disputes and create a platform for members to vent their grievances and concerns within the organization as opposed to going external, like approaching the cause. Do you see this curbing these ANC versus ANC court cases? Not at all. Here he is speaking about dealing with symptoms because these court battles are symptomatic of a liberation movement that is in a state of decay, that is factionalized, and also that has not been honest about some of the challenges facing itself. But at times, it's an organization that only believes that a diagnostic report from the Secretary General or a political report from the President reflects the problems, but they don't follow through with solutions. So in essence, ANC would have to deal with the issue of the nature of a cadre they have, the divisions and factionalism that they have, and what happens to those who tend to lose out in a winner-takes-all and the fact that corruption has become an embedded element of the ANC. It doesn't matter what dispute resolution mechanism you'd have, it would simply be besieged by the preponderance of these cases. Gosazana Zuma wrote a report some years back indicating some of these challenges from branch level to regions and so forth. Gatekeepers, some people simply leaving other people out, some delaying accreditation of others, some even trying to prevent others from becoming members. So you would never solve this at the end point. They need to go back and look at the beginning as to what is the nature of the problem. And I suppose factionalism is that beginning as well because the reality is if factions aren't resolved, you are most likely to have members that don't trust the existing structure if this National Dispute Resolution Committee is created and factored into the ANC's constitution. I mean, if there's factions, um, there, may, there are people that may not trust this existing structure and may even align its members to a particular faction because factionalism is still the core problem of the party. In fact, the biggest problem with factionalism is that it personalizes power yeah. and weaken institutions. People don't join ANC, they join faction leaders. And whatever are the ANC policies and rules are subjected to these personality politics. And that's when you start seeing the inconsistency of application of rules and discipline. Which branch get dissolved, which appeal get listened to in a factionalized environment, that is inconsistent because it's not a rule of law, it's a rule by law 
where you use law to punish your opponents rather than to use it consistently, no matter who is, uh, you know, presented before it. So it becomes a matter of which faction is stronger than the other. And I want us now to talk about another constitutional proposal. What will be happening at the beginning of conference is, I mean, we've heard some provinces suggest that the top six leadership be changed from top six to top eight. So you add another deputy president and you add another deputy secretary general. What do you make of this proposal? Do you see it gaining support, especially now in the context of this narrative around unity? Because if you enlarge the structure, you can actually accommodate the other faction that loses. In fact, simply accommodating factions within one room without addressing the core issues is just not helpful. You're simply going to institutionalize factions within the party itself. You have seen this within ZANU-PF, expanding your deputies without defining their roles. What should necessitate any change, expansion or restriction of the size should be to say for organizational effectiveness with specific idea of roles rather than to say in order to accommodate more people let's create more mm. and that has happened by the way with our cabinet our cabinet was expanded and its expansion was mainly to accommodate different factions yeah. and different political interests and the state capacity simply went down it didn't improve because you had more people instead you had more centers of corruption, you had more paralysis, you had more distribution of uh, the budget, and you had more competing roles rather than having a more focused and lean and focused leadership. And more people who are incompetent as well. Oh, certainly. All of a sudden, when the cabinet expanded, you had a lot more people who could not have made it to the cabinet. They were accommodated in, and as a result for them, they thought that their key performance area was loyalty to the person who appointed them rather than performance to the public of the Republic. Let's now talk about the cabinet reshuffles that we've seen under President Jacob Zuma's tenure um, in government have been countless. And I remember speaking to the Treasurer General of the party, Zulim Kize, who spoke about something that found expression in the different branches across the country where the delegates start or the branch members start talking about the power of the NEC, for it to be the central power th that can recall its employees in all spheres of government. And Zulim Kize spoke a lot about how we don't agree with the president reshuffle. We don't agree with him firing Pravin Gordon, him firing higher education minister, uh, who's also the SACP leader. And I suppose the discussion around that is let the NEC be the central arbiter. Let it be the one that will say, we decide that let's fire that minister. Because if you give that power to the president, then the president can abuse it, isn't it? Do you see this helping the issue around um, the many cabinet reshuffles we've seen and how they affect governance and the economy? Actually, it's more than that. In other countries, once the president has proposed names, they are taken to a committee of parliament to subject them into interviews, mm. to vet them, to see if there are no controversial issues. Therefore, you remove this from just political party machinations and you put it in the hands of a constitutionally mandated body. Yes, NEC can be consulted for the capability of cabinet members who may be going in there. That's fine, but what has happened now, the president has just been indifferent to what NEC or even Alliance Partnership has been. Ironically, it was said that Tabombege had governmentalized the ANC. Mm. He was no longer consulting Lutuli House. 
and he was taking decisions by himself. When he said, but it's what the constitution says, they say, but you're deployed by the ANC. Yeah. Fast forward. The same logic when it happens with Zuma, because the party has become so factionalized, that argument doesn't gain traction from those who are his loyalists. They say that's what literally the constitution says. And that's why even when the judgments of the court say, when you are conflicted, you can't say the constitution say, I must appoint people to investigate me. They say, no, no, that's what all of a sudden they become constitutionalists when it is convenient. Yeah. But where the constitution inconveniences them, they say this constitution should be changed. And I mean, also, if this is resolved, obviously for the NEC to be the central arbiter on, on the appointment of these um, officials in, in, in the spheres of government, that will require constitutional change. But I don't see the ANC struggling to get support from opposition parties to take away this power from the president as the sole person who can appoint our ministers, eh? Certainly what we've seen in the last 23, 24 years is a simple fact that our constitution was designed with a Nelson Mandela in mind. We never thought that you could have presidents who could literally fall so short of what the initial example was. So that gives us an opportunity as a country to say, we have seen in a concrete demonstrable fashion issues of appointment of national uh, you know, prosecuting uh, authority uh, director, appointments and dismissals of uh, you know, SABC boards and so forth. Mm. There might just be a need to restrain some of the powers of the president so that when it becomes irrational, when patronage stands up and trump any reasoning about capacity, then there should be safety guards and checks and balances. Let's talk a little about the integrity commission of the party. Um, there's a proposal to give it more teeth and resources because as it stands currently, it can only make the recommendations and those recommendations can be really thrown out by the NEC. They make those recommendations to the NEC. Um, is it gonna help because what I've seen recently with the integrity committee is that because of the factions in the party, they align certain members of that committee, they align their loyalty to certain leaders of the party. And it becomes very problematic um, for the integrity committee to do its job and not be accused of being factional. How, how is this going to work? Is it the case again, as you say, let's go back to the beginning, fix what's on the foundation, like factionalism. I think it's going back to the beginning. One mm. of the biggest reservoirs which could have assisted the integrity committee is to get ANC veterans and stalwarts who are no longer interested in any position or deployment. Mm. But now the current leadership has basically alienated and some even rubbished such veterans. Now, if you create an integrity committee, of active young members who are still aspiring to ascend to some positions of power mm. in a fragmented environment, it simply won't work. That's why ANC must just go back to the drawing board and say, before we took a detour, what was the organizational principle? And sometimes you'll find that some of its existing policies are not that bad more than the fact that they have decided to ignore those policies because some strong men some factional leaders ignored virtually everything and sometimes they even contradict what ANC and NEC has said. 
they contradict what the branches have said. Take one simple example. NEC meets for the whole weekend. They take a resolution that the issue of state capture has become a serious problem that needs immediate investigation. Mm -hmm. In another meeting, a few weeks later, the president is addressing constituents and say, whoever is talking about state capture, they don't know what they are talking about mm. <laughs> because you need to capture all the three branches of government, yeah. which means those 80-something members of NEC were just nullified. ANC and its branches in a policy conference meet. They say we will prefer to call monopoly capital instead of yeah. white monopoly capital. <laughs> President goes to one region in Cape Town. He says, whoever said just monopoly without saying white monopoly capital is out of his mind. He yeah. comes from another world. Basically saying to you branches and million or so membership, go somewhere and just find reason after this, uh, you know, resolution had been taken. Where are the reasons where we be members were saying this is a consultative leader who listens and so forth. That's why we will bring him on board. All of a sudden, when he does the very opposite, they are helpless and sometimes hopeless. I agree. And I mean, in, here's another area where you see the president say this and you've got other leaders of the party say differently, land distribution and whether land expropriation without compensation is the ANC's policy. I mean, in the party's economic transformation document, this is actually the document that's identified as the driver of radical economic transformation. And we'll talk about this radical economic transformation shortly, but I want to talk about returning the land to our people because this is how many of these campaigners, NDZ has been speaking about this a lot. CR has been speaking about this a lot, but surely there needs to be certainty on where the party stands on land reform and its policies and whether they will change those policies. What are you expecting will happen around this discussion of land? Well, let me start by saying uh, Abraham Lincoln and later Mario Como once said uh, politicians campaign in poetry, mm. but they rule in prose. Whenever ANC has been approaching elections or approaching its internal elections, they have been a lot more radical in their rhetoric. Mm. But after the conference, they tend to be a lot more pragmatic. So let's start there. And secondly, ANC has not been very effective in implementing its own policies. So some people not paying too much attention to policy dimensions has a history where you say, if we take these things literally, we will be disappointed because the track record of implementation has not been there. Most of these are deferred to the executive to say, you'll investigate, you'll see what is possible and so forth. And in the end, they just do not happen. So that's why people look at personalities and who gets elected and so forth. And it's a lot more nuanced approach that is needed to say what are the current dominant environment uh, economic political and social environment within the country to which ANC will be responding rather than the policy itself yeah because even with radical economic transformation we haven't had much there's no meat to it on this is the implementation plan at this policy conference because both 
the two front runners have consistently spoken and preached radical economic transformation. Are you expecting them to define it and somehow allow it to find expression in the policies of the party so that it can be implemented? You know, the problem with a populist stance is that it doesn't lend itself to a refined, defined position. Yes, you may have allusions of policy stances. And when you have such a corrupted environment of patronage, when you say radical reform, radical black empowerment, people read it to mean a radical transfer of wealth to those who are politically connected. Mm. You have seen this in other places where people come and say we are acquiring land for the masses, then you end up cabinet ministers, 17 farms, and president, 20-something farms, and so forth. It happens more radically at the top and very often slow to non-existent at the bottom. But what is happening now is that ANC is also responding to a reality from below that in the last 23-plus years, mm. The success in putting institutions of democracy has been a lot more impressive than dealing with the socioeconomic issues and the apartheid geography that needed to be changed. So that one, whoever wins, they'll have to address it in one form or another. But they also have a balancing act of how to woo investors, internal and external, create relationships with business and labor, because given the current economic situation, Whatever policy you want to come with, if labor and business are not on the same page to pull together, yeah. then that, those plans will be paralyzed. Yeah. On the party's pol uh, docu document on legislature and governance, um, this document talks about the ANC's conduct in state institutions, and it obviously mentions the deployment of cadres to, to the state. And... They, it speaks a lot about how that deployment must be based on merit. You must recruit public service managers with professional and technical capacity. We haven't seen too much of that happening. How significant is it that the party comes up with a plan to fix this? Because the, pro the reason we've got so much chaos in state institutions, to some extent, it's because of the people that, that have been deployed there. Short of having an independent body that would vet, that would test... Mm the capacity of those who are being proposed, you would never have that. And also short of what other Asian countries are doing, once appointed to this board or that as a director, you go through training, even if you're a minister, so that you know what you are going to be doing. You can't be minister of communication and say, I, I do not know what broadband is, or you become minister of police you are still to learn what the ranks are and so forth. That in itself has become a problem. And as such, you might even consider a situation where certain ministerial appointments for certain departments should be technically aligned. You are going to be Minister of Health, you must have trained in the health sector. Yeah. And you're going to be Minister of Science and Technology or any other technically uh, specific areas you must demonstrate that you have such skills. Other countries like Singapore have actually shown that that actually works. You may have all others which are more generic, yeah. where you have your political appointments, but you can't suddenly take 
a priest and say you're going to run nuclear, uh, you know, programs without any demonstrable, uh, you know, competence, or you take a person who has done philosophy and you say you're going to be minister of health and so forth. So that in itself is what has crippled the country. But still, we have learned in the last few years that deployment, whatever the case is, will always be problematic unless there is a verifiable independent way of assessing competence. Yeah. On education, how significant is it that the party looks at its policy around education? I mean, also in light of that international literacy study, um, that was quite devastating, an indictment on, 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 on our education system. But also fees education as well, fees as education, which has found expression and, I mean, through fees must fall. We know that the president, I think a few weeks ago, um, ordered Treasury to work on a framework through which free education can be rolled out. How significant is it that the party must focus on this particular point? Probably for any country that wants to invest on its future, education would come number one. Mm. In fact, it is equally possible that a reset button should just be pressed to say whatever we've been doing, throwing money, uh, it has not worked. Remember that South Africa is one of the top 20 in per capita expenditure in education in the world, but its results are dismal. Therefore, something has gone fundamentally wrong. Going back to basics to say how do we make our system work is very, very important. But for that to happen, though, it's an honest introspection to say something wrong has happened. However, when you see and hear the spin doctoring, when people say, you know, it was a good thing that we even joined the tests, uh, it's not a disaster. It now gives us an opportunity. You can't be saying for 10 years, for 20 years, you are being given an opportunity to fail progressively. Yeah. Fees must fall? Fees must fall, I think, is an indication of mm -hmm. pressures, economic pressures, which ANC ought to be looking at as a governing party for young people in this mm -hmm. country. Remember that most of the challenges that we talk about, uh, education crisis, HIV, AIDS, violent crime, and so forth, mainly impact on the youth. Unemployment is one of those. But I would say it should not just be focusing on fees, but rather the quality of education that should train people to be self-reliant. Secondly, they, once they qualify, where, where do they go to? If our education system, I mean, our uh, labor market is so constrained, and uh, not only that, I do think that it also speaks just to the economy not being productive enough yeah. to absorb people. So it should be a more comprehensive issue rather than focusing on fees. Because if it focuses just on fees, you may solve that only to realize that you have many other problems that you will encounter in this yeah. And uh, generally, even the shift towards technical education of the TVET colleges, it should be something well thought out rather than a knee-jerk reaction. And we've seen the devastation of politics playing out in the education sector. The free education call was used as a political football. As the Minister of Education 
and the president didn't seem to be singing from the same tune. And therefore, that is one indication of what factionalism does. Yeah. Peace and instability. Um, I suppose the party will be looking at this quite closely as well. I mean, you have people like several ministers, actually, including including Energy Minister David Mashobo. In fact, from the time when he was still state security minister, talked a lot about regime change, the color revolution. Will this find expression at the ANC conference? And I mean, what are they expected to rule on this? They seem to be so conscious and aware of this regime change through. And I mean, even they mention the courts now that the courts are um, what the courts are doing is a silent uh, coup d'etat. Actually, I do think that it will depend on the balance of strength within the conference itself. One thing we should admit, in the last 10 years, we've seen an increased securitization of state, mm -hmm. securitization of our problems. The reality as a political science lecturer is that anywhere in the world, you always have neighbors who will look at their neighbors and say, this is a weak regime, therefore let's influence change. Mm -hmm. The real problem is, why do you cut your arm when you are locked in a shark tank? Because it is the actions of the leaders mm. who limp from one disaster to the other, who send a signal out there that we are so wounded, we are so weak, we are ready for taking. Now, any country in the world would be foolish not to want to influence changes in the country, which has such vast mineral resources and reserves, which is a gateway to the African continent, which is the most sophisticated economy in the continent, which many emerging economies and old economies want to capture in order to influence. So to me, it is not the regime change, but the actions, the behavior of leaders who have weakened the state, who have actually ruined any image of the state uh, such that anyone who is an external enemy would be so keen. But at another level though, it's mere a smokescreen and paranoia. This we see throughout the world. When leaders run out of ideas on how to solve problems, what do you do? The best thing, you create an imaginary enemy mm. so that the political energies and focus are on that instead of simply resolving problems. For example, when somebody say, what about wide monopoly capital as a response to state capture by the Guptas? They had all the two decades to deal with wide monopoly capital. Mm. Why wait until now because it was understood from the beginning that much of wealth in South Africa was in the hands of white, white business. Yeah. Why then say, I will wait until I'm asked about my own creation of irregularity to raise this as a red flag? Yeah. It is not that. Rather say from 1997, this is what I've done to transform the economy, rather than to wait until you are caught with your hand in a cookie jar. Yeah. And just lastly, Prof, the last one on organizational renewal. This is quite intricate because this will really determine whether the party wins, I suppose, the 2019 elections or not. I mean, apart from whoever will be elected. 
And I see in that document, they also suggest the direct election of the president. And some have also suggested that some members of parliament. What do you make of that of that policy proposal? I think it is a positive intervention because if you say the power of the ANC is in the branches, you can't then say we've taken from one million members that power away to give it to 4,700 people mm. to decide. And even worse at times, like the NEC, we've taken it now to 80 six members. So to that extent, if you allow, as it is the case in other countries, members to just log on in and appoint or post their vote, you will be cutting the patronage network. You will be cutting this uh, use of money for delegates. Right now, we've had branches nominating but there's still uncertainty as to what the outcome will be. If we said the power lie with the branches, it would be most obvious to say what the expression of the branches was is likely to be the outcome of the election. Now, when you say we are uncertain, you are suggesting that we could ignore the branches Mm. and create something in between and bargain and sometimes even corrupt the system. Which then distorts the notion of the yes. branches having the power. The whole notion of the branches then collapses. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Professor Somatota Fikeni.